0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. My guest today is one of my CNN colleagues, one of the sharpest reporters in the game, none other than Abby Phillip. But before I get to Abby, I wanted to talk about early voting, particularly how we should interpret long lines, often lines of black folk voting in places like Texas and Georgia and states across the country. So like many of you, when I see the long lines to vote in places like Atlanta and Dallas, that's a good sign of real enthusiasm. This past week, on the first day of early voting in Harris County, Texas, which includes Houston, almost 130,000 voters voted on the first day. That is an increase of 47% from 2016. 47% from 2016. After two days of early voting... In Georgia, 601,247 people have voted compared to 156,017 after two days of early voting in 2016. That's a 285% increase. You heard that right, a 285% increase. I love to see it. I voted in person myself in Bamberg County the first day of early voting in South Carolina. But what concerns me is we still have too many places, particularly Georgia, where four, five, or in the case of Jonta Austin, the world famous record producer, 11 hour waits are common. As much as I appreciate the enthusiasm encourage people to vote early in person, we can't normalize the kind of lines we're seeing because they're voter suppression in action that we have to be more committed to fixing. I understand that when we win next month and we flip the Senate, we'll be focused on COVID and the economic recovery in January. That's priority 1A. Priority 1B has to be the passage of election reform that consists of three parts. First, we need to pass the H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, restoring key provisions of the Voting Rights Act that will give the DOJ the tools to sue states like Georgia that we know haven't done right by voters in the state, particularly black voters. Second, we need to pass H.R. 1, the For the People Act, that'll bring our elections into the 21st century by compelling states to provide automatic voter registration and establish same-day voter registration so people can register and vote on Election Day, make Election Day a federal holiday, prohibit voter purges, and a a host of other pro-democracy measures. Finally, I'd add... This Senator Harris Vote Safe Act of 2020 that provides $5 billion to states and local governments to buy machines, upgrade their technology, and most importantly, establish maximum wait times to vote and give people the money to actually expand their capacity to process and count votes. That's the package. That's what it looks like. That's what Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, the Democratic House and the Democratic Senate have to do ASAP. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act the For the People Act, and the Vote Safe Act. Make it all one bill, run it through the Judiciary Committee, pass it, and sign it into law in the first 100 days. So now that we've gotten that out the way, let's talk about why we're talking to Abby. This election has been unique in part because we finally have a ticket that looks like America, and now we finally have reporters that do too. They bring their entire selves to the newsroom as well as their lived experiences. Few journalists can say they've moderated a debate or presidential debate, been a White House correspondent, and become one of the youngest voices on national politics in the country, all while writing a book about one of our heroes and my uncle, Reverend Jesse Jackson. But Abby Phillip can say that. So we'll talk covering Trump, insights from the campaign trail and her forthcoming book on how Jesse Jackson transformed Democratic politics. Now on to the show.
1: restrictions. All apply. See website for details.
0: What's going on and welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast on the Ringer and Spotify. I have one of the most amazing journalists, TV, I don't want to call you a personality, but TV reporters we have (laughs) at CNN, my good friend, Abby Phillip. What's going on?
2: Hey, not much, not much.
0: <laughs> I know. It's a, is, it, is it a slightly busy time for you right now? Is that what's uh, going on?
2: Oh, God, yes. <laughs> what is it, 21 more days? <sighs>
0: yes. I'm just yeah.
2: going to call it that.
0: Is it just 21 or is it more so, like 31 or 41?
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call it 21 because, <laughs> you know, I have faith. That we will get the easier version of this election season as opposed know, to the, the
0: harder one. <laughs> the writers, the writers in 2020 have been on one, so I know. I'm not, I'm not sure. Look, uh, you've had stints at Politico, ABC News, and the Washington Post before joining us at CNN. Walk us through the arc of your career from Harvard to CNN.
2: Oh man, well, you know, honestly, it's you call it an arc. I feel like it's just been it's just been like a journey. And I have most of the time, I don't know where it's headed. And that's been the truth from the very beginning. But I mean, I feel like the whole thing really started when I was in college. And I was, you know, I was going to be a doctor, you know, my, my parents are immigrants, I was going to like, be a, be a doctor. And if that didn't work out, I probably needed to be a lawyer. Then I realized that, like, the doctor thing wasn't for me. I, you know, I like science, but I'm not good at it. So uh, I had to figure something else out.
0: <laughs> you sound like me. I took, I, I was a pre-med major at Morehouse until I took bio 112. Exactly. I, was, I was a pre-med major for, for two semesters.
2: Yeah. So. So I took, I took a little chemistry. I was like, Nope, not for me. <laughs> so, I mean, I ended up, uh, I ended up working on the paper just because I was like, well, if you can't do math, you have to learn how to write. And I wanted to learn how to write. And then at some point in college, I was involved in a lot of community service as an undergraduate. And I ended up going to Mississippi on this civil rights and service tour uh, where we basically went to uh, Oxford and Jackson. We kind of like... Um. We started, actually started in Memphis and then went to Oxford and then down to Jackson and then to Sunflower County in Mississippi to kind of see all the major markers of the civil rights movement. And that trip really was the thing that got me hooked on journalism. It was like the stories of the journalists who kind of brought the Deep South to the rest of the country and kind of showed the brutality mm-hmm. of the Jim Crow South for the rest of the country that kind of really got me hooked on journalism. And I think ever since then, I was just kind of like, well, I'm just going to try to do this thing and see how long it goes. And, you know, graduating from college just after the economic recession was not a great time to be a journalist. So I got a lot of lucky breaks. I got an internship at Politico, which people didn't think would last for more than like a couple of years. Turned out to be the best job uh, for me at that time. And I covered the White House at Politico. I went to New York and I worked at ABC News, just kind of like trying to figure out like, what do I like? What do I want to do? I went to you know, I was working in broadcast and I was like, I hate this. I don't, <laughs> don't want to work in TV. So I left and I went to the Washington Post. Um, and then I'm, I came back to TV somehow. and I think a lot of it is just sort of going where opportunities lead me. And specifically, I mean, I think ultimately the thought process is when I'm afraid of, to take a risk, that's usually a sign that I need to just take the risk. And that's what oh, I've wow. done career-wise. You know, I've, all of the job changes that I've taken have always been things that have terrified me. But I've, you know, in retrospect, I've never regretted it every time. Let me ask, I've you, done let
0: me ask you a question along those lines, because not all journalists make the full transition from print to TV. Was this a shift that you always anticipated, or was this a development that happened organically?
2: Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I when I went to ABC News, it was not because of ABC News, but I just felt like I was like I don't really want to be on TV. I don't want my job to be about what I look like or how I present to people. I want to, you know, write story. I I just felt like it wasn't for me. So I I thought when I left ABC that I would never go back to TV, and so you know, some people are like, Oh, I've always wanted to be Oprah. I've never wanted to be (laughs) Oprah. (laughs) I just never wanted. We love you Oprah, but that wasn't
0: really the goal. That wasn't the goal. (laughs) Trust me.
2: I love me some mother Oprah, but I never wanted that for myself. And so this is one of those things where I've had to figure out how do I be a television uh, correspondent in a way that feels authentic to me and, It hasn't always been obvious, but I I think I'm kind of in the process of figuring that out where it's like you have to take some things and lose other things and you have to choose how you want to be in the world. And I think that, that realizing that I could make those choices made it easier for me to decide that I wanted to come back into this world.
0: I want you to know you got a lot of fans. Uh, you have my mom, Gwendolyn Sellers, Auntie Gwen, and all her girlfriends love oh. you on TV. You're doing well in a certain demo. Your Q score oh, is going to be amazing. It. I love it. <laughs> but you're a part of a small sorority of Black women who cover Trump. It's yeah. you, April Ryan, Yamish Let me know if I'm missing anyone. But before Rachel
2: I- Rachel Scott at ABC now. Rachel Scott, she's yeah. She's a correspondent yeah. for ABC News. Kristen Welker- we've all had our run-ins. It's still a small small (laughs) sorority. Oh, it's so small. But
0: before I get into the unique challenges of covering Trump as a Black journalist, just as a journalist, period, how difficult is it to cover this administration, which oftentimes is untethered to the truth?
2: Oh, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, you spend so much time just getting to the facts that it's hard to deal with anything else. And you know one of the the really difficult things about it is that i've covered I covered the Obama administration. I covered this administration. I think that when I approach this this job as well as you know and everything that I've done in journalism, it's about trying to be fair to people. You know it's not about some kind of semblance of objectivity, but just fairness, giving people a sense that you're listening to them, that you understand what they have to say, and that you're going to take them seriously and represent. You know represent their viewpoints, people can take it or leave it right? The problem though is that this administration views truth as a partisan exercise yeah, that you yeah. are automatically That's against a them yeah. by by simply standing up for the facts, and it puts journalists in a really untenable situation, and it doesn't have to be that way i mean if they would simply tell the truth more often, a lot of the negative coverage that they complain about would not even exist, but they don't. And, and to quote my colleague, Daniel Dale, the lying is incredibly asymmetrical in the political world that we live in. Somebody actually said,
0: somebody said that it's like trying to catch confetti. Like you can't focus on any one controversy or lie because there's always a new one. And there's so many lies that you end up with nothing. If you're not focused, how accurate is that?
2: Yeah, I mean that's absolutely true. I mean, you look—you could spend all your days just fact-checking the things that come out. Thank God God for Daniel Dale, right? (laughs) I mean, and you and you see, like he—he—he can talk for five minutes straight without breathing (laughs) to get it all in. But ultimately, it is a distraction from the things that matter—the things that are really happening that affect people's lives. And it's really unfortunate because you can't really get to. Um you know, you can't help people evaluate, oh, do I agree with this or do I agree with that ideological perspective? Because you you have to get them to an even playing field in terms of what's true yeah. and what's false. Now you've had
0: your own run-in with the president.
2: It's up to him. you want him to rein in Robert
1: What a stupid question that is. What a stupid question, but I watch you a lot. You ask a lot of stupid questions.
0: But you were, you were poised as always. And while we see him lash out often at the press, I can't help but wonder how much of this response is because a black woman was questioning him. We've seen how he's responded to you, Yamish, and April on a number of occasions. Talk about how you felt in that moment in your confrontation uh, with the president of the United States.
2: Well, you know, you, when you've hit a button with someone. You sound
0: like my wife now. Wait a minute. <laughs> Y'all know all the buttons to press with. Is I this what it nerve. is? You touched a, nerve. touched a nerve. Oh, oh um, really? Huh.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, I knew that that's what had happened. And I, you know, in the moment I was just kind of like, huh, well, that's interesting. He's He was really triggered by the by the question that I asked him. I knew already that day that he was in a terrible mood. He'd actually already earlier in that same gaggle. He had attacked April Ryan and was criticizing her. April wasn't even there. So he was in this mood, you know, he he had just had a run-in with April just a couple of days before. So he was already in a in a mood and you know, it was obviously uncalled for, but I I do think that I can't get into his head, right? Like, I don't know really what's going on in in the president's head. I would say I had two reactions. One, as a journalist, I felt very strongly that I was like, okay, this is something that is worth pressing on, right? Like, it obviously bothers him that I asked about it, so that means that I need to keep asking. But then I think the second thing is just taking a step back, and this didn't, I didn't think this in the moment. I thought it more kind of after the fact, Yes, he has run-ins with all kinds of journalists—men, uh, white journalists, white men, white women. That's definitely true. But he seems to really not respond well to tough questioning from black women. Just it, it sets him off more frequently or more more quickly. You know, he can go back and forth with John Carl. And then finally get to a point where they have, you know, a real confrontation. But he doesn't do that with Yamish or with me or with April. It's from the get-go that things really kind of go left. And I think that, I don't know why that is, but it does seem that that's a pattern. And I think that everybody kind of knows what it is at this point. And, you know, it's up to the president to change that pattern if he doesn't want it to be a pattern.
0: Or theme or talking yeah. point. Or what we ought to be be, believed to be fact. Let's talk a bit about the Democratic primary, particularly the debate that you co-moderated in Iowa, which you did an amazing job. Talk about what goes into the preparation for moderating a presidential debate.
2: A lot, a lot more than I thought. I mean, I I had never moderated a debate before, and so hope, it, how did what did
0: they what did they do? I mean, what, did who somebody just called you and was like, "What you doing on Thursday?" Like, how did that
2: It, it was kind of like that, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Literally, it was um, less than a week before the debate that I was told that I was going to be moderating the debate. So there was really no time. There was very little time to prepare. Literally, one of our senior producers who deals with all of these special events called me into his office and I thought he was going to ask me for help with writing questions <laughs> and, and then and he was like we want you to moderate the debate and I was like what? What? <laughs> <laughs> you know and he was like what did you think I was gonna say and I was like not that
0: yeah, I, you know, <laughs> definitely you, you, not you that. sending me out to Iowa you want me to go to what is it Dubuque where you just want me to <laughs> yeah so, that's dope though I mean you were great so what I mean what what is it like you know we all go out there and cover it so what is it yeah. like actually because you guys go into this little cone and it gets really weird and y'all exactly. start practicing and y'all act weird for three days Jake and Anderson go into their modes and what was it like <laughs>
2: It's really intense. I mean, we have a whole team of people and they are just running through, we run through the debate like a dozen times and we have people pretending to be the candidates and they study their mannerisms and their talking points and and everything. And we just go through it over and over and over again to kind of, hone in on the best questions and the best dynamics and the best conversations um, and try to kind of simulate what these candidates are going to do. And we do that for days leading up to the debate. And, you know, it it is an incredible effort because literally the people who are standing in for the candidates, they embody, they start to embody the candidates. They really, and, and the truth is what they say in those sessions is pretty close to (laughs) what happens on the debate stage, which, you know, as someone in politics, you know, that like talking points are talking points and, and debate prep is basically these candidates memorizing what, how they're going to react when they're faced with certain topics. And so it's in that context that our team prepares for it. And it really does kind of, demystify, like there's not much spontaneity really, ultimately is what I've learned about debates. (laughs) Um, And then, and I think in the moment, in the hall, one of the hardest things about being in the hall for the debate and sitting at that table with Wolf and Brianne was literally, it was the hardest when you weren't doing anything. When it's my turn and I'm asking questions, it's like you're on and you don't really have time to think about it. And you're just kind of focused, but it's when someone else is asking the questions yeah, and you're yeah. just sitting there
0: looking all weird. Yeah. yeah I mean, it,
2: it <laughs> is an excruciating, I mean, a truly excruciating experience. You know, I'm like, breathe. <laughs> you know, like, like breathe you can't. And, and I'm like, it's like when you're not doing anything that you start shaking like a leaf and you can't say anything because the mics are on at all times. And you're just sitting there, just trying to disappear while it's not on you. So how I would say feel, that, is, how, that was the how hardest part. How did you part.
0: feel about Chris Wallace and Susan Page? Because you had this unique kind of bond Ooh. with them going through there, and I, you know, I, nothing
2: but empathy. That's what I have know. to say. I mean, I have to. I mean, truly, look, it is easy to criticize debate moderators, but it is very very hard to do. It is hard to wrangle these candidates. As someone who's covered this president, it is very hard to wrangle President Trump. I mean, if you haven't tried to do it, you won't understand how difficult that it is because he is probably going to be louder than you and, and will keep talking until he gets his words in. So yeah, I, there were definitely times that you, you're kind of like, oh, I wish that they had done this or I wish that they had done that. But I try not to be overly critical of the moderators because ultimately um the game that is played in uh politics is attack the moderator, but really, it's about the candidates no like the- <laughs> we never did.
0: i've never I never attacked Susan page or Chris Wallace. please don't look at Twitter right now <laughs> look
2: i do think I do think that you know especially in the last v p debate, the absence of follow ups or the absence of you know Mr. Vice President, you didn't answer the question, I think was a mistake. And I think that could have been resolved. But there was a decision made not to do that in the interest of kind of allowing people time to speak. So you live and you learn. And I hope that the next debate works some if of it these out.
0: <laughs> right. If it happens. I want to talk to you about covering Kamala for a minute. I saw a lot of poor reporting on Kamala and we still see it from her facial expressions during the debate to journalists discovering Howard University and AKAs for the first time, to not understanding the nuances of how black people feel about public safety in the criminal justice system. Sadie is a big Kamala fan. But anyway, (laughs) uh, talk about the growing pains you saw in newsrooms around covering a black woman running for president, which was uncharted territory for every news organization this cycle.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people don't know how to, it's really more about covering a Black woman who's running for an office of this level, right? Because, you know, there are Black women in Congress, powerful Black women in Congress, but there's something different about running for president or vice president. And I think that one of the things about diversity in newsrooms is that it's not just about having more um, people of color covering politics. It's also about having white reporters understand how to cover people of color. And yeah. that's why we saw some of these missteps with Kamala and the AKAs early on. Again, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so at some point, reporters don't know things and they don't know that they don't know. And that's a problem. And I do think that, that you know, Senator Harris is Always going to be subject to explicit racism and sexism we saw it directly after the debate she 's always going to be subject to implicit racism and sexism mm-hmm. that 's going to be a little bit harder to um, a little bit harder to identify but I also think that there's something else that that um, and I actually saw this after the debate a lot too, which is that sometimes even things that are not actually about her race and gender get attributed to her race and gender sometimes.
0: So
2: so meaning that like a a strategy that is simply a strategy of, uh, you know, if she like goes into a debate and employs a certain strategy to be lawyerly and to be, you know, who she is as a, as a candidate, sometimes there's a, in an effort to sort of overcompensate right. on sort of like wokeness, people want to attribute things That's to true. her race and gender when sometimes it's just her being strategic in a in a way that might actually be strategic. And so there's a lot of calibration happening, but I think people are more sensitive to it now um, than they were even when Hillary was running. They're more sensitive to the ways in which, like for example, seeing, you know, Megan Kelly... as you alluded to, talking about, oh, you don't have to smirk or whatever it (laughs) was. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's just literally not a thing that you say about male candidates, like the president who smirk all the time. I think that there's nothing, maybe this is going too far, but I think right at this moment, there's nothing that can be done about the racism and sexism that she's going to experience. But she, like all black women in politics, she's navigating it, you know yeah. you navigate it and you navigate it in a way where you're, it's in the back of your mind it's it's second nature to you because she's been navigating it her entire career I, I assume and so you know I think it's great for us to talk about it, but I also think that I also think that one of the things that we need to do in politics is to to just to not have that actually always be the conversation about her and allow the conversation to also be about what she's saying, what she's actually doing, what strategy she's employing, what policy positions she's taking in all understanding that some people are all are going to approach her, uh, with that context behind it. And I, but I think it does her a disservice to kind of, to, to boil everything down to her race and her gender every time, you know, the topic of Kamala Harris comes up because she's a prosecutor. She's a United States Senator. She's a vice presidential nominee. And I think she should be treated that way in the fullest extent of what that means.
1: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment. So it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with $25,000 when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here. More. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: What's your sense of responsibility, or how do you you carry that? What burden do you feel that you're carrying? And this is going to kind of lead into my, my next set of questions as we kind of wrap up. But talk to me about the sense of responsibility you feel being a Black woman who's a journalist during. This time Stokely has a toilet seat on his head. Oh, uh, <laughs>
2: that sounds, that sounds that, like
0: fun. <laughs> yeah, that's your potty training, don't, don't worry. But what <laughs> sense of responsibility do you feel right now during this time where you have a president like Donald Trump, you have this history going on. Just talk to me about how you carry that burden with you, which is such an awesome responsibility and the legacy. I, you put me in the mind frame of someone like Gwen Eiffel, who does it with such poise and graciousness and intellect and depth. How do you carry that burden today?
2: Well, I mean, obviously, if I could channel Gwen literally in everything that I do, <laughs> I absolutely would do that. You'd you have know? a stamp. You'd have a because, stamp. I no, mean, I no. have a whole rack of stamps <laughs> in the next yeah. room. <laughs> um, you know, I think obviously it is impossible to escape race. I think it's the most important story, actually, of this cycle It has been from the beginning, the power that Black voters have had in shaping Democratic politics, the way in which the politics of white grievance has defined the Republican Party in opposition to what they call identity politics among Democrats. And then also, as always in media, who tells the story matters. And we, I think, are seeing that so much more this cycle than ever before. Look, every time I'm on television, and I didn't, you know, I used to be, as we talked about, a print reporter. So being a black woman as a print reporter was not always like front and center, because a lot of times, like before Twitter, people wouldn't even really- There was a before Twitter? There was a VT? (laughs) before Twitter, it was not necessarily a given that people would have even known that I was a black woman. But the thing about being on TV is that that is, that becomes part of who you are. And I hear from people all the time who say that it matters, but I also think that it matters in the sense that I, and you, I know that you're always in the situation too, because we're on panels together all the time. You know, you, you, you're speaking up for people who don't get represented on television. And like, I can't tell you how many conversations that I've had on our air in which, you know, the only perspective that is being given is a perspective of Northeastern white liberals. And we just need other voices. And that, I don't view it as, in some ways as a burden as much as it is a responsibility to kind of always speak up for that when you can and to to center the voices of people who are not otherwise centered in, in elite media circles, especially on channels like CNN and at the New York Times and at the Washington Post, where they're not hearing from, you know, the people that I grew up around or, you know, even people like my parents who are Black immigrants or people like my husband's parents who are Black Americans from the South and from the Midwest. And on top of that, I'll just I'll say one more thing. One of the things that is different about this era of covering politics and it's having covered a Republican administration is that I've covered Republicans in the past, but this administration is the first one in which it always feels like my Blackness is, in their view, a sign of bias against them. And that is an unusual thing because, you know, I, Republican sources on Capitol Hill, Republican sources over the years, it's never really been an issue. But what's different is that a lot of times there's a presumption of bias because I am Black that, that you have to overcome in order to try to cover this administration. And that is different, I think. And it's, but it's worth talking about because it's pervasive it's becoming increasingly pervasive, and I think it's wrong because uh, we don't assume that white reporters have a have a bias because they're white one way or another. Um, and yet, a lot of black reporters are perceived to have um, some kind of political bias because they're black. And I think that that does a real disservice to black reporters in the political space, in particular, because it's racist. (laughs) I mean, it it just is. It it is racist to assume things about people based on their race, just like it would be sexist to assume things about people based on their gender. And I think that that needs a little bit more scrutiny. And hopefully that's something that uh, we can all talk about as a society when this is we got, a lot of, we got a lot, we, we a got a lot, we got to have a big, so- time. yeah, yeah, we got,
0: we got some time. We got a big society meeting that has to happen sooner. <laughs> I want to wrap up talking about your book project, Chronicling the Life of Jesse Jackson and His Impact on Democratic Politics. Why Uncle Jesse?
2: Well, you know, this book idea really came about because I felt like, especially coming after this cycle, Black political power continues to grow year by year. And I think people thought black political power peaked in the Obama years, but I don't think that that's the case. I think it's only actually grown since then. And so, one of the parts of that story is kind of like looking at looking at how it came to be. And one of the big parts of that of of that answer is Jesse Jackson running for president in 1984 mm-hmm. and 1988, and a lot of people in Democratic politics forget that that even happened.
0: It changed the whole landscape of democratic politics. It changed
2: the whole landscape of democratic politics. And, you know, Reverend Jackson is someone who has had a lot of lives. He's a civil rights figure. He's been a political figure. He's been an international hostage negotiator. He's done a lot of things. and He's been a television host. And so I think a lot of people forget about the fact that in 1988 he came in second place in the Democratic primary. Mm -hmm. And looking at how he did that, which was a combination of helping really voter registration for Black people, particularly in the South, consolidating the power of the Black uh, voting bloc, but then also his economic populism, which we still live with today, which has offshoots in Bernie Sanders. It has offshoots in some of... um, you know, the AOCs of the world and the, you know, all of these candidates who are coming up in democratic politics, young candidates, people of color who are coming up as organizers and as populist organizers, that politics was popularized in large part by Reverend Jackson. And I think that that story deserves a telling, a retelling. I think it's um, very notable that political history is rarely told by black people. And certainly the political history of black political figures is almost never told by black people. And I think it, it's important to do that because, you know, even in the, you know, I'm in the early stages of research in the book. And a lot of what's written about Reverend Jackson has only been written by white book authors. And the way that he's he's written about, I think is viewed from that lens. And I think that if you ask a lot of people in politics who kind of know the history of the last 30 some years, they will say, you know, he probably doesn't get the credit that he deserves for creating the kind of the foundations of what we're seeing today. I think you could argue that Joe Biden would not be the Democratic nominee had, you know, had there not been decades upon decades of the sort of building up Mm. of Black political power uh, that really started in the 1980s with voter registration and with Jesse Jackson being the the Democratic candidate who consolidated some 90 plus percent of the Black vote in that primary. So there's a lot there that has a lot of resonance for today. And I think that looking forward, what's important is what lessons can the Democratic Party learn about how to build multiracial populist coalitions? Mm -hmm. Is it even possible to do? Because that's one of the things that he tried to do. It wasn't just about black political power. It was about bringing in, you know, white farmers and, uh, you know, people in the Midwest. And it was his Michigan victory that really put him on the map. So what does that look like in the future? Is it even possible to bring white people into a sort of multiracial coalition for economic and racial justice that he tried to do in the 1980s, I think it's an open question what the future of that kind of politics looks like for Democrats.
0: So obviously people didn't have their, or people do have their perceptions of Reverend Jackson, particularly younger people who didn't witness his runs in 84 and 88. But what do you think the biggest misconceptions are about Reverend Jackson and his legacy? And how do you think your book will correct the public's perception of Reverend Jackson?
2: Well, I don't think that the I don't want to go into this project trying to sort of reframe him in any kind of moral sense. I think that this is about this is about sort of understanding the political history uh, uh, and the role that he played in that political history. And I do think that to answer your question, the misconception that a lot of people have about him is that they don't even know what he did. Correct. And, right, so, so um, he's done so many things, and some people have positive or negative feelings about it, but um, just from a raw political perspective, just taking that a snapshot of when he did engage in the, in the political process, what did he contribute to who the Democratic Party is today? It would be hard to, um, it, it's hard to ignore the impact that he has had in that way. Now, there are a lot of questions about why he wasn't successful, right? And that's a big part of it is, you know, what were the flaws? And there were many flaws. And I think that one of the things about Reverend Jackson is that he hasn't ever really told his own story and written his own narrative. And so I think his narrative has been kind of crafted by Other people as the years have gone on. So I think that that's really one of the reasons why um, there's so many dramatically differing views of what he contributed to the political landscape. But if you talk to people like Donna Brazile and Maxine Waters and, you know, Mignon Moore and all of these uh, powerhouses in democratic politics, guess where they got their start?
1: all got they with, all got with
2: it. reverend jackson okay. they they all started with reverend jackson so this isn't about sort of um sort of any kind of image rehabilitation it's about politics and where we where the democratic party is in terms of um the things that the ideas that he had and what impact it had on the country because i think it really did actually have a very significant impact on the country as a whole and specifically on how black people in America view their power. And it really set the, the foundation for a Barack Obama run, um, allowing black people to envision a black man yeah. as president to envision someone potentially winning. Yeah. So that had to happen. And had it not happened, I, I don't like know that this.
0: we would have been
2: where we were. So there's a lot there, but I think, you know, it's, there's,
0: when I, does it come out? When does it come out?
2: We were, well, we're aiming for 2022. Okay. So, so not this year, but the next, you know, summer, um, maybe spring, summer, right. just in time for the 2022 midterm elections. Man, don't, 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 we,
0: no, we're not, we're no we not talking about any more elections. We're going to get through November.
2: Know, I mean, it'll be an, it'll be an interesting time for that book to come out because I think we will see kind of at that time, what the sort of. You know, if Joe Biden wins this election, that'll be the time when I think we will see what direction ideologically is the Democratic Party heading in. Yeah. And um, I think one of the options is this sort of like Jacksonian progressive. Uh, that is one of the options. There's another option, and it's a bit of a more moderate kind of Biden-esque. Joe Biden
0: type yeah, type, yeah.
2: Right. So, so we'd somewhere it's going to be one or the other. And I think that this book will be landing around the yeah, time no, when that's interesting Democrats are navigating you, you,
0: that. You have, uh, you know, it goes unsaid, I think, but with both, both Barack Obama and Joe Biden, you have these very fractured relationships with Although he set the stage for them both, you have fractured relationships with them and Jesse Jackson. So that's yes. pretty interesting. interesting and comment.
2: Biden, and as you know, Biden and Jackson actually have a lot of history in that 88 oh, a lot,
0: race. A lot of history. Right. That, I, right? I mean, I,
2: maybe not to overstate it, but they have some history in yeah. that 88 race. And that's going to be an element of the book, too, just the way in which kind of, you know, um, Maybe you, so time. Time. maybe you time can get some time. Maybe you can get some time with the president thing. about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, if he if
0: he is president, maybe you can get some time with it. Well anyway, Abby, yeah. thank you so much for taking some time out of your immensely busy schedule to join the Bukhari Sellers Podcast. This was something we had circled for a long time. So I'm glad you I were able to join us today.
2: Oh, I'm so glad I was able to do it. Thanks for having me on.
0: Oh, have a great day. Good to see you.
2: You too.